bite. Read works. My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro 21 Jump Street and pro journalistical podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we have had a change of tack. Uh, we have, in the past, done movies where it's people in suits in boardrooms yelling at each other, and this is yet another one of those. But we haven't done one in the recent, e- in the recent couple of months. Uh, so, getting back into some more shouty boardroom stuff it is the financial thriller magical would you call it that every like at the end of last episode you asked me three separate times to repeat that name you've now watched the movie and you still can't remember what it's would, called would you call oh, it a I thriller it. i would well I it's know. tense like the mo- most of what i remember is people going oh shit while looking at spreadsheets so do forgive me if i forget the name uh, before we get into that, but however, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Uh, well, of course, we did an episode on 21 Jump Street last week, which means that I also saw its sequel, 22 Jump Street. It is a buddy cop comedy, again, directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. And in it, Schmidt, played by a returning Jonah Hill, and Jenko, played by a returning Channing Tatum, are sent undercover at a much more age-appropriate institution, uh, college. Uh, it's the same plot. They've got to find the dealer uh, for a new drug that's popping up. And the department wants it that way because they think that the success of the Jump Street program is related to the fact that uh, it was just doing the same thing over again. So if we do the same thing a second time, we'll get just as good results. Uh, but college life tests their relationship and pulls them in different directions. Uh, this is a much more meta sequel. Uh, it is, in a lot of ways, about sequels. I mean, they're constantly taking shots at Hollywood about, you know, no one cared about it. No one thought it was going to work, this stupid program. But now everyone's paying much closer attention to it. And they've given us more budget than we actually need. So we've bought this new place, 22 Jump Street, which is across the street from 21 Jump Street. And it's all of this like high-tech 24-esque like, stuff that we didn't actually need, but we've got it now. Um but that whole idea of just do the same thing that you did the last time, like that's uh, very, very much, it's a it's a very meta in that sense. Uh, but it's also a way more comfortable sit given that it's taking place in college instead of a high school. Um, there's this, the, the bedrock of it, the bedrock of the comedy and the, the emotional through line is the friction between Schmidt and Janko. Uh, there's this sort of extended high school sweethearts parody. The idea of, you know, this couple who got together in high school but are now off at college being exposed to new ideas and different people and start <laughs> to drift apart. Um, it's like ridiculously homoerotic. Like they lean into it so, so much. Um, there was a bit of that in the first one. Yeah, they go like overdrive this time. Um, 
But uh, it's very funny, and it, it's quite a bit wackier than the first one was as well. It's it's very much leans into the absurdity of things. You got some great supporting performances as well. Ice Cube is even better than he was in the first one. He gets a very like probably the defining scene of these two movies comes in this movie, and it's between Ice Cube, Channing Tatum, and uh, Jonah Hill. But um, you also get some new supporting cast. Uh, Wyatt Russell, Peter Stormare, and Gillian Bell turn up in supporting roles, and they're all very good. It also has an all-timer end credit sequence, which um, is uh, a fairly... uh, I mean, it's a show-stopping moment. It's a Mm. great idea to end the movie on, and it's gone beyond the movie. People who haven't seen the movie know it because it's become kind of a meme. I know you guys already knew it. And it's it's one of the longer post-credit scenes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sort of mid-credit sequence. It is the mm. credits essentially, but it's very uh, long. <laughs> they they've been talking for years now about um, another one of these. I mean, they straight up announced Twenty Three Jump Street a couple of months after this movie came out, but there has been no action on it. I know that there's been some talk in recent years about bringing the franchise back in a different kind of way, a sort of spin-off kind of way. Um, there was a female-centric uh, spin-off that was uh, talked about for a long time. The most recent update was in November 2020 when it was revealed that uh, the writers of um, the the writers of uh, Bob's Burgers, a lot of the Bob's Burgers episode had been episodes had been hired to write the script, and it was now called Jump Street. Now for her pleasure. Um, in July 2023, uh, it, ComingSoon.net reported that Brie Larson uh, <laughs> is doing a spin-off movie. I don't trust this because it comes from one of those, you know, insider sources type things. But um, that's the most recent Jump Street kind of thing I that also we've heard, heard of. I, I don't know where I heard it from, but I heard that they're going to skip 23 and go straight to 24. I've not heard that, but like... the. The one that seems to have gotten closest was uh, it all came out in the Sony hacks, the the hack yeah. emails in 2014 that they were going to do a Men in Black 21 Jump Street crossover. And um, there was all sorts of emails between the studio and uh, different m- members of the Jump Street creative team, including Jonah that Hill. That sounds like a legitimately insane yeah. decision It was going to be called MIB 23. Um, but... Uh, Jonah Hill, it it seems to have just been dropped at this point, but Jonah Hill uh, had the very, very memeable and mockable quote from one of the emails of his that was leaked, in which he described the idea as, quote, clean and rad and powerful. Which, doesn't that sound so like a thing that Jonah Hill would describe a 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover to be? Yeah, yeah. There's Uh, a lot of things you can cross over with 21 Jump Street. My mind does not immediately go to Men in Black. I kind of get it because it's it's it is like cops and secret agents, like this satirical, funny take on traditional genre archetypes. Mm. I mean, I do see it. Um, but uh, if you would like to stream Twenty Two Jump Street in avail in Australia, it is available on MG on the MGM channel on Amazon Prime. I next saw John Carter. It is a science fiction adventure film directed by Andrew Stanton. It is based on the novel A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. 
It's set in 1868, believe it or not, uh, when a, a Confederate Civil War veteran, John Carter, played by Taylor Kitsch, uh, finds a strange amulet in a cave while he's looking for gold. Uh, and this amulet is borne by a, a very odd grey man who tries to attack him. But he kills the guy and takes this amulet and it teleports him to Mars, where he finds himself in the midst of a power struggle between competing factions manipulated by the same species of grey guys. Uh, and through happenstance, he ends up teaming up with a princess named Deja Thoris, played by Lynn Collins, while he tries to find a way home. But of course, he gets invested in the struggle against the evil empire that is trying to take over Mars. Uh, you know, I filed this next to Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets in the folder of hugely ambitious genre flops. It took a long time to make it to the screen. Uh, it ended up being in development for well over a decade, um, but uh, it was one of the most expensive movies ever made, and it ended up losing Disney $200 million. <laughs> and poor Taylor Kitsch, because this mm. and Battleship came out the same year. He fronted Battleship as well, and that lost the studio $150 million. So when you're given your two big chances to be the lead of a blockbuster, and collectively they lose uh, $350 million... <laughs> Dollars, they make yeah. no money at all. Um, whore. Uh, That's just bad luck. <laughs> unsurprisingly, his career never never came back from that. He is now purely a a uh, TV show actor. Um, hmm. And yeah, like uh, even even then, he doesn't have great luck. Like his season of True Detective was the one everyone hates. <laughs> um, but like he was also the guy that they tapped to play Gambit in uh, X Men Origins Wolverine. Like. Yeah. Terrible, terrible luck for our guy Taylor Kitsch. But um, this is this is an entertaining movie. It just bites off far more than it can chew. It's, Why is it always the Confederate soldiers who get to go on these adventures? I don't know. It's ba I mean, it, it's taking it from the original novel. Uh, yeah. And from what I can tell, um, a lot of the problem, because there has been much, much written about the production of this film, because when Disney of all companies loses $200 million, entertainment journalists pay attention to how that happened. <laughs> um, but the director was basically, these were his Star Wars when he was growing up. He loved these books and he just couldn't conceive of any changes to the source material or any, um, or, or really even understand the idea that the, the concept might need a little bit more tailoring to present day audiences yeah. like all you need to do is is shade the uniform differently oh, I'm, not, and I'm not even talking about the confederate mm. you know civil war thing now i'm talking about like said the 1800s guys transported to mars there's all these different alien races like it throws you into the thick mm. of it immediately like there is no in for an audience who is not someone like us who enjoys that stuff um and uh yeah, there's there's actually been a lot of like deep dive deconstructions on what went wrong here. Um, it just doesn't introduce its factions and concepts very clearly at all. Uh, a lot of the stuff here really works for me as a science fiction fan. There's all of these aliens and lore and these you know new wild cities and things, um, but it's just not introduced in a very digestible manner if you're mm. not a science fiction fan. Um, most of the most intriguing stuff of all 
actually is an invention, is not in the original books to my understanding, is this race of grey guys who um, basically are the overlords of the universe, essentially, that they manipulate the development of all of these different planets. And uh, essentially, we're all like like a, a, an ant's nest, you know? A, like a Sims game. Yeah. We're all a game of Sims. That's a good way of putting it. But all of this stuff is surface level. It doesn't have time to go deeper on anything. Uh, it's just bitten off so much more than a two-hour movie can chew. The characters are very underdeveloped. They're mostly just ideas of characters rather than anything with great detail. Kitch and Collins aren't good at all as the leads for this film. Um, Collins, by the way, also a veteran of X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one of your romantic leads not being up to par is bad enough, but to miss with both when they are it, they are the what the movie is riding on, so unfortunate. Um, the visuals are spectacular, but they, they have aged. There's just so much green screen and so little practical work. But I think there's room for this. The, the only problem is, is that it came five, six years early. I mean, if it launched a little while after it did, if it had launched now, it would be on Disney+. And kind of like a Solomon Kane thing. Yeah, that like, would be the oh, space... Oh, yeah, a very sort of old story that needs room to breathe. Well, it is very much out of that era of um, storytelling. It is very much a companion of Solomon Kane and Conan O'Brien and all of those sort of pulp heroes. Conan O'Brien, Conan Not the Barbarian. Not Conan O'Brien, Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> you just um, see Conan O'Brien swinging a giant axe around? But yeah, I, I think that a TV version of this would have fixed a lot of the problems. It's just that it would not have been possible until recently so um it's what happens when you try and put a series into just one movie yeah well they, they were looking at it as a trilogy so mm. you know it it does resolve itself better than most um but they were definitely intending on continuing it it doesn't end on a cliffhanger or anything but they were definitely wanted to keep going um it's you know it just i i think that this probably poisoned the well i don't think we'll see it anytime soon um but it's available for streaming in australia on disney plus if anyone's interested. Uh, I next saw a movie that you guys have seen recently, The Raven. Uh, it is a mystery thriller directed by James McTeague, who uh, we've talked about before. He directed V for Vendetta. Um, and it follows Edgar Allan Poe, played here by John Cusack. He's washed up. He's broke. But he does want to marry uh, Emily Hamilton, played by Alice Eve. But Emily's father, Charles, played by Brendan Gleeson, will not have it. That ends up being the least opposed problems as well, because there is a psycho imitating the murders in his stories. And so he's got to team up with Inspector Emmett Fields, played by Luke Evans, to find the guy. Uh, this is pulpy. It's a little silly and it's very entertaining. Um, it's sort of 1800s castle. It's like it's really exactly it's 1800s exactly castle. To the point where, you know, castle came out in 2009. It's almost like I, I really almost think that the people who came up with this movie just saw castle <laughs> i i would i would almost guarantee that yeah um poe is a a hit or miss character though i find and that is almost entirely due to john cusack who is very ill-suited for the role that he's playing he's just awkward and he's uh, got the look he does have the look but he doesn't blend the so much of it just is 
drunk John Cusack rather than Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And that's a that's an issue. And John Cusack is a guy who to see his like he's not even someone like Al Pacino or Christopher Walken who have embraced ham and have become kind of, you know, echoes of who they used to be as performers, uh, at least until recently on Pacino's part. But um Cusack is a guy who if you look at his filmography, it's like at some point he just gives up and he stops caring entirely. Like he just starts doing hot tub time machine and, and things like that, or or just random direct-to-DVD action movies. And his performances just, you know, flatline, um, even in the good movies that he's in. It, it's really like he just stopped trying, and it's a fascinating thing to see an actor do to their own career. But um, I also find the romance iffy here. It was, it's, it's entirely chosen by the movie's own standards to have it be this way because they've cast Alice Eve who is in real life young enough to be uh, John Cusack's daughter um, and it's so obvious when they're side by side on screen uh, well you know it is consistent with Poe so yeah but um, the the mystery stuff is very fun very pulpy it's suitably grisly it attempts to be creepy it doesn't really succeed but uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And they it's, get a lot it's of fun to see them translated into murders. Yeah, they get a lot of mileage out of using the Poe stories. Uh, Evans, I found very entertaining as the mm. inspector. Um, he minds a lot from a little. I completely misremembered the movie and thought he was the killer. <laughs> and that that and, and of course he's not. I'm not going to say who the killer is, but I will tell you it's not Chris. It's not Luke Evans. But like that sort of like made for the biggest plot twist possible <laughs> when I got to the end um, because I really did think. And, you know, I went, I watched the trailer after watching it and they use voiceover in the trailer um, where it's actually from a scene in the movie where Luke Evans is reading a letter that the killer has sent. Mm. And because he's reading the killer's words in first person, it's all like, you know, I challenge you to a game, Mr. Poe, and things like that. And I... What I think was, and I remember now, I had a theory that they, or I, I was just like, they can't possibly be to, ha, as stupid to have the killer be Luke Evans and put that dialogue in over the mm. trailer. I really thought that that was just a dumb marketing choice on the part of the, <laughs> the studio and that they'd given it away in the trailer. Um, and so, No, yeah. they're a little more canny than that. Um, but uh, for the budget, the production value lands pretty well. Um, I will say that when they do get to the solution of who the killer is, it is kind of disappointing, though. It actually would yeah. have been better if it was Luke Evans. <laughs> um, yeah. My response when finding out who the killer was was him. Yeah. They, they do, like, the bare minimum to make it plausible. Yeah. But, like, yeah. Uh, next, and uh, lastly for this week, I saw Game Change. It is a political drama directed by Jay Roach. It's a TV movie originally aired on HBO, and it is based on the non-fiction book Game Change, Obama and the Clintons, McCain and Palin, and The Race of a Lifetime by John Heilman and Mark Halperin. Um, this tells the story of the 2008 president presidential election entirely on the Republican side. Uh, John McCain, played by Ed Harris, is gearing up to face Barack Obama. Um, Barack Obama and uh, Joe Biden are only played via archive footage, real-life archive footage. They don't appear really as characters. Um, 
But uh, McCain's senior campaign strategist, Steve Schmidt, played by Woody Harrelson, thinks that they need a dynamic vice president pick to counteract the feeling of Obama as a change candidate, the momentum that he's bringing. And so they choose Sarah Palin, played by Julianne Moore, the at the time governor of Alaska, and the rest is history. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Very entertaining history. This is uh, an interesting time capsule that could use more verve. It is one of those ones that, if it were done now, would be a mini series because it is, a, it is a little too much of a docudrama of a you know sliding uh, slideshow presentation of events. I've actually read the book that this is based on. It's incredibly interesting. It's got lots of detail. It's got lots of sort of behind the scenes reportage that they got from people who agreed to speak anonymously. Um, but this is my – I read that book before the 2016 election, and uh, obviously I'm watching it now, in t- the movie now in 2023. It seems prescient in ways that it doesn't know um, because the one thing that the movie does really latch on to, uh, does really see, is Palin as sort of the harbinger, sort of the, the activation of this populist thread of the Republican Party. And the movie understands that because it's being made in a post-Tea Party era, but it, you know, it clearly does not know. It doesn't where know how right it going is. To end up. No, it doesn't know just where this is going to go, and it really does feel like watching two hours of people inviting a vampire into their house. Like, <laughs> it, so the movie doesn't have the presence of mind to be afraid of its prediction. Oh, it's afraid, but it's not nearly <laughs> afraid enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> A lot has happened. Um, Palin's gone in the direction that you would expect her to go. Um, but McCain has become this sort of like, I suppose, martyr of the Republican Party as it used to be. Him and Mitt Romney. Mm. I, will never fi- I will never cease to find it fascinating that the two men who ran against Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 have been Donald Trump's most vociferous opponents mm. within the GOP. That McCain like, himself... And they've been was, consistent, was, too. Oh, yeah, right from the start. But McCain himself is the reason Obamacare is still a thing. He was the yeah. deciding vote that saved Obamacare during the Trump presidency. So, like, half of the senior campaign staff for the McCain 2008 campaign, I've Googled it, half of them are Democrats now, <laughs> like, including... <laughs> Including the Woody Harrelson character, he's just a Democrat now. Like, um, like it's, but it's a prelude to all of that. It is a prelude that you know. It's just a fascinating time capsule of a movie because it sees parts of it coming, but in many ways, it's naive. The way that the film and the characters in the film express horror at the idea of Sarah Palin that this is a person who knows nothing about governance and lies frequently. Oh my god, <laughs> you know. Um, it got it could get so much worse, guys. Uh, it it is a somewhat clumsy adaptation. The script is written again to be a sliding uh, slideshow of events to summarize rather than to be scenes that you could really see people of actually having with each other. Um, but it is interesting in its presentation of Palin. The book did got get a lot of notices because suggested a really deep and underlying problem with Sarah Palin, not as a political candidate, but as a person, that she was uniquely unsuited to the kind of spotlight she was put in, that she didn't know things that she needed to know. For instance, she didn't know that the Queen was a 
power and name only. She didn't understand the separation between the crown and parliament. This is something that the book and, and the movie as well put, puts forth. But also that she is completely brought down by the press attention, by the mockery of her in the media, and is driven to essentially a nervous breakdown that they only even get through because Schmidt and the rest of the campaign staff start giving her literal lines to memorise and to sort of, you know, just echo pre-written stuff to get through her debate with Biden, to get through her appearances on the campaign trail. It's not unsympathetic to her. It is the uh, it presents her as, as a woman who is just completely beyond her element and has been exposed to the media of the entire world when she should not have been because she just didn't have what it took. Um, it also does acknowledge the, the very poor way that members of her family were treated. She had a pregnant teenage daughter at the time and the way that that was obsessed over with such glee by so many members of the media and I will say it, the liberal media, the left-wing media who, you know, would today be so outraged at the idea that a Republican would attack a um, and mock a pregnant teenage daughter of a political candidate that were doing it themselves. Um, the hypocrisy is clear here. But um, it doesn't shy away from the darker impulses that it sees in Palin either. The desire to get the easy cheer, the desire to go for the low blow, the desire to play into the worst of politics. Um, it, that stuff could be focused on better, but again, it just doesn't have the perspective that we have now. Uh, McCain, as this movie presents him, is a fascinating mix because there is a level of self-interest that is precluding him from intervening in the way that he should and in the way that you get the sense that he wants to. Um, but you also get the sense that he's the only one who really recognises just what they've opened the door to. Uh, at one point, he just straight up refuses to intervene because he says it's gone too far and if he intervenes now, the base will turn on him. And he's right. We've yeah. seen it. He's right. <laughs> uh, look at what happened to Mitt Romney to... Um, Lynn Cheney, obviously the Trump machine is so much more than the Palin machine ever was, but he sees it coming. And even though he doesn't have the courage to actually put it all on the line when he thinks he maybe could still be president, um, he does see it there. And again, I will never cease being fascinated by the role of the old guard in the Republican Party, McCain, Romney, even the, the two Bush um, presidents as the surviving Republican presidents when uh, Trump assumes the White House. Um, that will never cease to be fascinating to me. And the whole movie is anchored by spectacular performances. They, they are all very, very good. Harrelson is very good, uh, but Moore is the one who steals it. She is just creepily, uncannily accurate in terms of uh, tone, in terms of line delivery, but in terms of look, like once they've got her, I don't know if you if you've looked up while I've been talking images from this movie, but she's just so exactly there. I can um, picture it, as, yeah. Yeah, like, it's a very watchable movie, but I would almost say it's due a remake. Um, <laughs> it's, it's due a completely different avenue to approach this stuff. I mean, in fact, we've talked before about, you know, someday someone will make a six to seven season Donald Trump show. And this is almost a 
a, a flashback episode of that, essentially. It's almost like, you know, you set a whole episode on the floor with McCain just having been recently diagnosed with cancer that he knows he's going to die on, die from, making that deciding vote on Obamacare and, like, you flash back to essentially the content of this movie throughout. Like, that's an episode of TV right there. Mm. Um, it is, like, I will just say that it's incredible how much history in recent years has felt like a narrative, <laughs> you know, has felt like a story being told and plotted in terms of the way that these characters have these incredible arcs and the way that stuff comes back from the past and, you know, ends up being really important and the way, you know, guest stars from previous seasons come in and are now, like, really crucial to the plot. Like, it's nuts how much this feels like a script. <laughs> yeah. The most interesting um, thing about this kind of movie is that it's very much being made just a few years after all of this shit's happening. And it's almost like it, it's just coming too early. It's the same problem with that James Comey miniseries, that we won't really know how to properly look back on a lot of this stuff until it's all over. Um, HBO, for a long time, had a um had a reputation for that though they the sort of instant political drama movie they they did a lot of those um you know they did this i've already talked about recount which was about the 2000 election i've talked about too big to fail which was about the 2008 um or the 2007 2008 gfc um you know, they, they did a lot of these and they've moved away from it in recent years. They've really stopped programming original movies for the most part uh, ever since 2018, really. That was the last real batch of them. Um, but uh, they they have indicated that they are going to travel back to that with that George Santos movie that they are now making, um, which I think... They've should, got to get Harvey Gullian to play him because... Just be a Bo is Afraid or Everything Everywhere All at Once sort of like fantasy land adventure. <laughs> some madness. Really, yeah. Some auto madness. The stories that George Santos has told about his own life, they feel like an Ari Aster horror film. Well, it's just like, yeah. I mean, I do want to read the the book about George Santos one day, but like, again, it's like, just it's just Why weird. would someone claim... Why would someone want to claim involvement with Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark? Yes, exactly. I was going to say, of all of the things that he said, claiming incorrectly that he produced Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, like the infamous disaster which lost everyone, almost, almost everyone, their careers, their jobs, their reputation, it's, it's, and it's, ended it up seriously injuring multiple people. <laughs> like, like, what's the logic? It's, yeah, exactly. it's similar the- to those people who do fake deathbed confessions to murders and stuff like yeah. that. It's like, but but he's not dying, is the thing. But, he's not going well, to yeah, be but, shuffling off anytime soon, so well, why exactly, would you that's, lie? That's the most fascinating thing about it, is because there's lies like that, which, which are literally, for what purpose? Because they make you look incompetent. <laughs> like, yeah. So. yeah, like, I understand a politician lying. Hmm. We're, we all are aware of how that works. But usually you can see the pathway. Yeah. You, you can see the strategy you can see, there. You, there is usually no strategy lying. Here. Well, mostly they're lying to make themselves look good, not make themselves look worse. Hmm. Anyway, if you would like to watch uh, Game Change in Australia, you can stream it on uh, Foxtel Now and Binge. 
All right, so for the stuff that we've seen within the week, uh, first we started off with a game show. Um, it's based on a television series that John and I were quite big fans of. Squid Game The Challenge. Oh, is this uh, the one where all the contestants are suing Netflix? Yes. Not all yeah. of them, but a good Not portion all of, them, of them. A good portion. Uh, 456 real players will enter the game in pursuit of a life-changing reward of $4.56 million. As they compete through a series of games inspired by the original show, and a couple of new ones, just to throw them for a loop, um, their strategies, alliances, and character will be put to the test while competitors around them are eliminated one at a time, and sometimes in batches. Um, John, why don't you say your short piece about Squid Game, the challenge? Look, the entire idea of doing this as a game show is so against the message of the original program that it's honestly, it somewhat baffles me, but also it makes perfect sense for Netflix to jump on the gravy train like that. And look, I'll, I'll speak about the positives to it. It's a reality game show. It's Squid Game as a television game show. So, of course, it's entertaining in that sort of <laughs> trash fire, turn your brain off, lizard brain kind of thing. You're getting just short bursts of, you know, look, feeling that you're better than certain people being like, no, 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 I would have done it this way. And all of that kind of thing that you usually get in your big brothers, your survivors, your greatest race, your... Survivor is the cleanest parallel. All things like that. And what the positive about this is the games and the set design. Because they've just recreated the sets from the original show. And they look perfect. They look incredible. And... The design and the effort put into this show is really where it sings. But it's very manipulative with its editing, because of course it is. It's reality, but reality filtered through what can entertain people the most. Which goes to the fact that you only get to see certain people at certain times. And look, you can't discount the fact that a lot of people are suing Netflix over this, because... <laughs> You see a lot of people who buy into the shtick so, so quickly that I can understand if people had mental anguish after. I can understand because this is literally against the point of the original show, which was it's wrong to try and force a bunch of people to compete in order to get life-changing, sometimes life-saving money. And this is exactly just what Netflix is doing. Without any idea of winking at the audience and being like, we know. No, they're just playing it straight. Um, it's, it compels yeah, there, me, though. There's so many lawsuits. The conditions that the people went through were trash. But I love this goddamn show. It is... It's reality TV trash filtered through Squid Game. And what a way to misinterpret Squid Game by Netflix. My god. And I couldn't be happier that it's that way. Because not only is the fact that it exists at all deeply, deeply funny to me, it's all incredibly well executed. Like, all of the games are exactly how they appear in the show. Except they don't actually kill people. We do uh, want to put that the out lethality, there. Apart from the lethality, 
but what they've done in the in the tests where people are supposed to get shot, they're squib under their shirts. So the moment they're eliminated, bang, with ink splattering up onto their necks and heads, causing this really interesting effect where some players are boring and they just stand there looking dazed and confused after their squib goes off. But the people who really bought into it, oh, they milk their moment of death. They're like full on collapse and everything. If I were in this, and make no mistake, I would definitely be in this. I would make a moment out of my death. I don't think I'd get very far, but I would milk it for all it's worth. And part of the reason I'd like to be involved in something like this is just for the novelty of it. Well, when you get that Netflix settlement money too, you'll be set for life. (laughs) And I just, I adored Squid Game. I, I loved everything about it. The acting was phenomenal. The set design, the tension, the games, all fantastic. One of my favorite TV shows of the last three years. I would just love to be in those sets because they've recreated them exactly. And that would be so much fun to see what it's like to just be in that space. I would full on go uh, escape room on it, in- invest myself in the storyline and everything. Um, I love how they translate each of the games. They do red light, green light. They do that honeycomb game where you have to cut the shape out. Um, they, but they do but some, some twists. games that are different. They make people think they're doing cert- going to be doing a certain game, but pull the rug from under them, which is fun. I won't want. I I don't want us to spoil yeah. which game it is, but yeah. But the rug pulls that the game masters do are legitimately funny to see. And like with any other game show, you get invested in certain contestants. Uh, not only the ones you want to win, but the ones you want to immediately lose. Um, and really, that's just the nature of the beast in a game show like this. Yes, people are edited. Edited in a way that makes them seem more villainous. Because, like, every every human being is more than just their worst moment, but not in reality TV. Um, But it makes for compelling television nonetheless. I was so satisfied when one contestant got eliminated that I I literally punched the air above me. Um, I just think it's incredibly well executed, down to the, the little details of the games. It's just really, really well done. Um... But you can't get past the essential ridiculousness of the show existing in the first place. And that just makes me love it all the more. <laughs> uh, we haven't finished yet. We're, I think, a couple episodes out. Yeah. Um, and it's really, really compelling. I mean, Not and the show lie. has been successful. So you know that Netflix is teeing up a second season of it. But we'll just have to see how these lawsuits and... Hmm. controversies go because well squid game is getting a second season yes and i'd like them to i would like to see if they involve some of the new games in this one in this series yeah into the squid game season two i just think that would be really really interesting because the games are translated very very well i find um yeah can't wait for squid game season two and can't wait to get back to finishing this series as soon as we're done recording. Uh, you can find Squid Game The Challenge on Netflix. We also watched, because it's getting close to Christmas, we've been over the past few years on a very big Christmas Carol kick. And 
it's a story that we love so much that we seek out different versions of it. We spoke about a few of those versions last year. And we spoke about the and, Guy Pearce version the year before. But the version. And, and we, tr- we try to find the small ones, yeah. the, the less well known adaptations, because you never know what you can mine from like a TV movie. It's such a ubiquitous story. Everyone has their version of A Christmas Carol, and it wouldn't surprise me to find out that this version is. It is 1984's Christmas Carol, starring George C. Scott as the miserly Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge. We all know the story. He is a piece of shit, gets haunted by ghosts, and then gets convinced to go and buy a turkey for a bunch of poor people. That's the story. I'll yes, let- it is. It is. Um, the I've I've heard it described before as the story about a rich man who has to be frightened into being a reasonable human being. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's true. Like he's such a. But the interesting thing about this one is he takes glee in his cruelties. He. Yeah, I'll just let Harley say his piece about this um, one. I've seen George C. Scott in several movies now. Exorcist 3, uh, for example, is one of my favorite movies, full stop. Um, but throughout all of the G- George C. Scott I've watched, I've never seen him smile so much. Yeah. And a lot of Scrooges are like these sort of wispy old men who grumble and growl all the time. Just crooked men with crooked minds, but this is a very solidly built George C. Scott sneering down at people when he says cruel things. Like, the moment in the story where he's talking to the two blokes from the charity, uh, one of them is Michael Goff, by the way, criminal on the use, but George C. Scott is just grinning at them the whole time as he's telling them that the poor should just die. Like, he gets legitimate enjoyment Yeah, he laughs, he laughs as he people. says that they should decrease the surplus population. Yeah, it is... His performance is so fascinating because he's just got a different interpretation on Scrooge. Like, he is someone who has spent a very long time enjoying being an arsehole, not suffering for being an arsehole. But you can see in him that there's more there as well. Um, They translate the spirits incredibly faithfully, but one of the interesting elements they do with Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come is whenever he gestures with his arm to point at things Ebenezer needs to look at, you hear the sound of a cemetery gate creaking open. And that is such a haunting sound, the way that it's mixed. And it's it's really affecting because it gets to you. Um, but, you know, it's a fantastic story, always has been, always will be. This is a pretty, particularly strong adaptation. Um, yeah, I, I I had a really great time with it. It shows its age, and it certainly shows its budget, being just a TV movie from 1984. But, yeah, I think it's it's solid. It's not bad. It's not the best I've seen, but it's, it's solid. I like them when they make big swings, and this characterization of Scrooge as not someone who is miserable, but takes glee in cruelty, is fascinating. That he isn't sort of this sallow-looking old man, that he has in essence grown fat from his greed. And to see him brought low is 
really enjoyable. And George C. Scott is fantastic. And when he's forced to grovel at the feet of the Ghost of Christmas future, you really feel that he is terrified beyond belief. And, you know, the man's got horror bona fides, so that it really isn't a surprise. There are a lot of good secondary performances, specifically coming from the ghosts. I really appreciated the performance of Christmas Present. Try to find the name of that. I can track it down for you. I believe it's Michael Carter. No, Edward Woodward, who, the way that he performs certain lines is absolutely brilliant. The fact that he has this joy in him, but he knows his time is short. And, funnily enough, I'm seeing a lot in the version of The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come that is very similar to The Grim Reaper, which is that 1987 Australian PSA about the dangers of AIDS. There's a lot similar about it in terms of you just sort of see him in the distance, he's standing in the fog, the way that he moves is very similar. So I found that quite an interesting thing because the Grim Reaper ad would only come out a few years later. Another interesting element here is in the original novel, the spirits, the ghosts of Christmas, they mock Ebenezer almost constantly, especially Christmas present. And each of these spirits, when they're taking him down a peg, they seem to get legitimate enjoyment from that. So it's a bit of him receiving what he's been giving for all of these years. Yeah. But I thought this was a quite strong interpretation. I've seen better, but I have definitely seen worse. Um, uh, a young boy called Anthony Walters plays Tiny Tim. He's certainly not a young boy any longer. He looks like death warmed up. It's insane. <laughs> Never has Tiny Tim looked easier to knock over. Uh, yeah, he looks... Like- Absolutely frail. But he's got this light in his eyes that is sort of perfect for Tiny Tim. Yeah. Like, wonderfully done. And it looks like uh, this Anthony Walters hasn't done much else. Uh, Mostly additional additional crew stuff. Um, He was, like, a representative on, like, Tropic Thunder, Twilight, Knowing, just assorted stuff. Yeah. strong Strong adaptation... Yeah, well done. Uh, so you have a pit take, Lawson? Um, yes, I do. I have see- I have finished another book. Uh, it, it, <clears throat> it is the second installment in the Ellie trilogy, which, as you may recall, is the sequel trilogy to the Tomorrow series. So all in all, the ninth book in this whole franchise I have now read in the second half of this year. Um, it is, like the others, a young adult drama written by John Marsden. Uh, and in it... Ellie, now an orphan, is trying to juggle running the farm, still attending school, but also looking after the other orphan, uh, Gavin, the much younger boy that she is now uh, taking care of. But she's being increasingly drawn into this uh, vigilante group called Liberation, which continues to run these border raids over the border to what is now a new country. Australia, as of the last book, has been divvied up and uh, the invaders have been given their own section. And uh, Liberation are running these raids to try and rescue people that are still being held hostage by the invaders. Uh, and Ellie's being drawn into all of that, but she get, begins to feel overwhelmed, especially when Gavin gets more and more antisocial as a result of his war trauma. 
This is a very strong follow-up I found, but I think it could be stronger. It is very much a middle installment. It's a continuation. There's not much plot stuff. It's the middle part of a story. The strength is in the characters. It's it's in the time we spend with them and the development that they have. It's especially to be found in the relationship between Ellie and Gavin. They're these two characters who have lost a whole bunch in the war and are now the only thing each other has left. Um, and there's a lot to do there that really has an emotional impact, I found. Uh, it's more psychologically mature and dark than some of the previous books have been, um, which is interesting considering that the previous books mostly took place in war and this one doesn't, but it's still <laughs> it's a darker, a darker story. I mean, it's dealing with... Um, Often the fallout, like, the fallout yeah. that that has on people's psychology, uh, especially these two kids who are now all on their own. Um, Gavin's becoming more and more antisocial, not dealing with things properly. The warning signs are going off. Ellie is really trying to keep things together, but you know she keeps wanting to dive back into doing something, to being part of liberation. That's the incurable of the the title. She can't cure. Um, her, you know, sort of addiction to action, but there's also the incurable nature of what's happened to them, the the illness that they've been left with, this PTSD. It's not something that's going to go away, something that they've just got to learn to deal with. Um, it leads to a big problem sitting right bang in the middle of the whole story, which is this very long, very dull excursion over the border. It is Marsden still... Operating, operating under the assumption that because this is related to the Tomorrow series, we need to have an action sequence. And there are a couple of action sequences outside of this particular bit that do work because they are smaller scale. They are about the people taking part in them. This one, though, is very big and bombastic and it's another sort of like shooting guns and running around and driving cars. Mm. And it's just not necessary. It's this big chunk that could be removed from the book so easily and the book would be better for it. There's only so many times you I, can do that again and again before you just run out of ways to, to write it. I have been meaning to ask, um, because writing action is an incredibly difficult thing to do, um, at least in my experience with writing stuff, uh, how does he do writing the moment-to-moment -moment action? Um, he does a good job mostly like that's the thing it's just at a point where it just doesn't fit the books anymore um yeah. i mean the first couple of books he did a really good job in and he there's some stuff later that he in the series he he's he did where he had some pretty good set pieces but it's just it this trilogy i say this now having read two books and a bit of the third one it really shouldn't have had this stuff in it. It would have been much better for it if it was very much just about these characters dealing. Um, so it sort of had diminishing returns. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it doesn't fit the tone that he's going for. It doesn't fit the story. It just feels like we're being dragged back in because out of, out of obligation more than anything, he seems to think he needs something like this in there. And to be fair to him, you know, I look at, you know, reviews and stuff online, what, people think of these books they don't like them compared to the original series because they find them boring 
because um, not as much happens in it. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, 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 tell me more about how this teenage girl's going to run a cattle farm and, you know, get psychological help for the 10-year-old <laughs> the that she's looking after. Like, that's the stuff I want to hear about. But You just you know, want things to work out. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it just might be that, you know, I'm at a different age than the target audience of this book and I'm much more interested in the emotional core of it than I myself might have been if I had read all of these through when I was uh, 14, 15. But um, I'm very concerned that Marsden's going to try and turn the third book into a big action finale. I think that would be very damaging to the trilogy, and I really hope he doesn't do it, because this stuff wasn't even the most interesting part of the original series. It it shouldn't even be in this one. Because Aftermath stories are about... What you do after the conflict is over, not well, yes, continuing that's the on the conflict. definition of aftermath. Harley. But you know what I mean. It seems that the continued action beats are missing that essential point. I mean, it's a different style of action. I'll give it that. It's a different, like, it's a different motivating impulse behind it. Is that you know, it's them actually having to do this quietly because it's Mm. not wartime anymore they can't act with impunity and so there's a whole bunch of other stuff there it's not like he's just doing the same action sequences it's just it's just gotten to the point where it just isn't necessary and it it actually seems to blunt the stuff that he's doing well um i will say too they replace the audiobook narrator um after eight books this ninth one is a different person and considering it's all written in first person from ellie's perspective it's quite jarring um it's a very different take on ellie's voice it bothered me but i've come around i don't know why they did it um i have looked up that narrator and i can't find that she has done anything that i could find post this book's release date i don't know if she retired or what um but it's uh yeah Rubs my OCD the wrong way, but once I got over that, I actually came to appreciate the what the narrator was doing. Um, but that is me done for the week. So you've only got that last one yes. to go through, and yes. that's it. That's it for the Tomorrow franchise, I suppose. Until you get to the TV list with the ABC TV No, show. that ended on a cliffhanger. I'm not watching it. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, so I'll watch movies w- that end on a cliffhanger that never get resolved because the movie's two hours of my life, but TV shows, no. T- too much of a time commitment. Uh, so that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Margin Call. Remember it at that time. Mr. Dale, these are extraordinary times, as you very well must know. I don't understand. The majority of this floor is being let go today. Eric, I'm very sorry. I was working on something, but they wouldn't let me finish it. So, take a look at it. Be careful. Yeah, hello? I need you guys to come back up here. Wait a second. Just trust me, okay? I need you guys back here now. Wait a minute, what am I looking at? This figure here. Whoa, is that? It gets ugly in a hurry. Is that figure right? Looks pretty right to me. There are eight trillion dollars of paper around the world relying on that equation. Well, we were wrong. No, you mean you were wrong. Sir, if those assets decrease by just 25%, 
that loss would be greater than the current market capitalization of this entire company. How long would it take to clear that from our books? You cannot be doing what you're thinking of doing. Sell it all today. You're selling something that you know has no value. So that we may survive. There are three ways to make a living in this business. Be first, be smarter, or cheat. Look at these people wandering around with absolutely no idea what's about to happen. You're a very important piece of this puzzle. Are you in on this? I can tell you that people are going to say some very nasty things about what we do here today. If we're going down, and you damn well know it'll be together. I'm not sure that I do know that. The ground is shifting below our feet. Remember this day, boys. Remember this day. That was the trailer for Margin Call. It is a financial thriller written and directed by J.C. Chandor, and it is set on the eve of the Great Recession at a large, unnamed investment bank. The story takes place over a 24-hour period, picking up as a series of staff members are brutally and publicly fired. Among those let go is the company's head of risk management, Eric Dale, played by Stanley Tucci. As he farewells his workers on the way out the door, he hands a file drive to Peter Sullivan, played by Zachary Quinto, telling him it contains a project he was working on and to be careful. Intrigued and mildly alarmed, Peter sets to work on the drive that evening after the rest of his colleagues have gone home. A mathematical genius, it doesn't take him long to solve the puzzle Eric had found buried in the business's financial returns. I'm just going to mostly quote from the Wikipedia page here because I only barely understand it. But, quote, the assumptions underpinning the firm's present risk profile are wrong. Historical volatility levels are being exceeded, which means that the firm's position in those assets is over leveraged and the debt incurred from those over leveraged assets will bankrupt the company. End quote. Let's put it this way Zachary Quinto completed Stanley Tucci's sums and it came down with a frowny face. Uh, the movie never mentions the, uh, the actual words, but most audience members will be able to intuit what those assets are, mortgages. Um, they do say mortgages. Do they? Do yeah, they actually they explicitly do. say that they're mortgages? They say mortgages. Okay. What we're selling is essentially mortgages, is one of the lines. Uh, Peter raises the alarm, and soon a veritable who's who of the company's upper management converge on the building as the night grows longer. There's Peter's friend and colleague, Seth Bregman, played by Penn Badgley, who has no real business being there, but helped Peter get the word out. The pair's boss's boss and trading floor manager, Sam Rogers, played by Kevin Spacey. His second-in-command, Will Emerson, played by Paul Bettany. The head of their entire division, Jared Cohen, played by Simon Baker. Chief Risk Management Officer, Sarah Robertson, played by Demi Moore. And soon, arriving via helicopter to scare the shit out of everyone, the founder of the company, John Told, played by Jeremy Irons. Realising that their colleagues at other investment banks are just as overleveraged as they are, Told intuits the incoming collapse of the world economy. He and Cohen draft a ruthless plan. They'll clear their books of the mortgages in the next day of trading, selling them at a massive loss to their colleagues across Wall Street 
in the knowledge that when the penny drops, those sacrifices will allow them to survive the economic apocalypse on the horizon. Sam and Peter are horrified. Sarah begins to realise that she's the scapegoat told will offer up to investors, and Will sets about trying to locate Eric to make sure he's brought back into the fold long enough to ensure he doesn't tip off the other banks. As the dawn comes, Told and his employees are about to be the first out of the gate in a fire sale that will collapse the global economy, and very few of them know quite how to feel about it. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on margin call. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Three, two, one. Go. This, I didn't understand a lot of what they were saying, because I'm not an economist, I'm not a mathematician, but as Harley said, they put in a sum and they saw a frowny face. This is compelling, though, because it's a bunch of people in a boardroom getting progressively more panicked, and you see it on their faces, and it's held together by fantastic performances and very emotional cinematography that puts you into the position of these people. Mm. You ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This is extremely taut. It's very tight. It's well paced out. The performances are all fantastic. And while I don't fully grasp what all of the the lingo and everything, uh, as a student of sociology, I can look at the people and see how everyone is losing their minds over this. Um... It's a tort thriller, financial thriller. No lives are at stake, but a whole world economy is at stake. So essentially, lives are at stake, just not physically yeah. in the moment. Not immediately. Uh, I love this movie. It is one of my favorite movies of 2011. It might be my favorite movie of 2011. Um, it is right up my alley. I adore all of it, but I think the thing that really works is that it's not about the statistics and the the actual functions of this investment bank. It's about crisis response. Mm. It's about how these people are dealing with this information as it unfolds. And that's the thing that gets to me about all sorts of things that other people tend to find not very interesting. Um, And Mm. I know I'm over my time here, but, you know, that's my, my interest in politics, you know. People say, why are you interested in politics? It's because it's about people. It's about how personalities respond to extraordinarily unique sets of of circumstance and stimuli and the implications of I that. I mean, and really, what is it's also film... About, it's also about operations and processes. And what mm. is film meant to be but taking moments that try people, putting them onto the screen and sort of scrutinizing the different personalities and how they break down and how they can build each other up. That's the entire point of it. That's why these kinds of stories are so fascinating, that they're character pieces at the end of the day. You get that in something like JFK. You get that in any kind of political thriller like Wag the Dog. And sort of the point of them is to see how the sausage is made and how the people making it feel about it. Um, I do want to start off just by giving some props to the writer-director here, J.C. Chandor, because this was his first film. Well done. Um <laughs> Biting off a lot. Yes. And uh, not only does he do an exceptional job, but he got nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay. Uh, He got a cast that most people can only dream of having for their first film. Um, And I think it's actually a a really astonishing accomplishment 
for a first-time screenwriter and a first-time uh, filmmaker to pull off because it's such a complicated Byzantine labyrinthine mm. set of circumstances that it's dealing with that he makes it legible, yeah. that he makes it yeah. thrilling, that he makes it character-based. It's intimate. Yeah. And part of that comes from his own background. He wasn't a um, an investment banker, but his father was. And so he mm. knew a lot about it. He knew a lot about the people and the personalities um, that go to that space. Um, and so he was writing something that – he was able to write something that feels to the layman very authentic. Mm. And it does feel authentic. What I don't think I didn't notice the movie constantly saying, dumb this down for me. Yeah. And thank you, that is so needed for me. <laughs> um, I'm an artsy dude. I'm not a math guy. Yes, we have Bachelor of Arts. We don't have <laughs> Bachelors of <laughs> of Mathematics or um, Economics. Like, I can tell you how but a film I is like, shot, but I couldn't tell you why and how it makes the money it does. Like, I like movies like this because, again, it is about the processes. It is about how the structures respond to moments of crisis and i've studied sociology so that is immediately my hook in to a movie like this it is seeing how different people at different levels in a structure respond um i i loved the scene where quinto is discovering the problem for the first time and the look of his on his face he's horrified and it's interesting. Because the moment he sees it, he and knows. it's interesting because he can't remove people from the equation. He can't think about it as in the w same way that the others can, where they can sort of compartmentalize and think about them just as numbers. He thinks about... Well, I don't think they can. I, I think the only people that can... The only person that can do that, to my reckoning, is the Simon Baker character. Even mm. told seems to understand exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. It's what, just what that, I... a, that a lot of them don't care. Or not a lot of them, but the people at the t top end don't care. They don't care. And what... Okay, so what I can understand about what actually has happened in this movie is that they have been operating based on an equation that tells them what they can and cannot get okay, away I with. can actually explain a little bit about this, because I, I can yep. already tell that I have a, a better grip on this than you guys do. I'm, I yep. don't have a great grip, don't get me wrong. Again, Bachelor of You've Arts, read but, enough books, uh, you've seen enough movies about yes, this kind of shit. I'm, yes, I'm reasonably up to, to snuff on this, to the point that I, I have a vague understanding of how this went down. So okay, what we're talking about is the subprime mortgage crisis that caused yep. the GFC. You know, please don't send me hate mail, actual economists. I'm doing the best I can. So, um, <laughs> the the subprime mortgage uh, crisis was basically, you know, as we all know, the banks were lending mortgages to the um, to people that they shouldn't have been lending mortgages to because they didn't have the opportunity to pay it back, but uh, they didn't have the means to pay it back. But um, what these particular types of mortgages had that made it appealing to these banks, to um, these investment banks particularly, is that they were able to lend them at a higher interest rate. Um, so more money for the bank over time. And now this is something that ended up being a problem um, that infiltrated the investment market because uh, of housing securities trading. So basically people are buying a stake 
companies, including this investment bank in this movie, are buying a stake in these people's mortgages because when these people pay it back, all of that interest is going to make it worth a whole lot more than the actual mortgage itself is. Mm. So uh, this uh, this was just like a, a house of cards that had been built up over decades. It was a huge issue. And at this point, you know, these they were literally packaged deals that you could buy these stakes in multiple mortgages and these investment banks were trading them back and forth because the interest that they were earning from them, the income that they were earning from them as they were paid back was massive with the with the potential to be even more massive because of all of that interest over however many decades. Um, and, and part of the way that the movie explains it is that because of the way that that particular company operates with how they've been doing this, they need to hold on to the stakes for a little while before they get processed fully. Yes. So that if they're, yeah. So basically to retrade them in, to basically buy and then make sure that they're sold for a profit. There's all sorts of like arcane numbers separating stuff out. You know, these are bundled things with a whole bunch of stuff going on in them. Essentially what it ends up with in this movie is what ended up happening in real life. That a whole bunch of really big banks, especially in the US, are deeply overleveraged in one particular asset. They're overleveraged in these mortgages. They have bought so many of these mortgages because they make a profit. But all of a sudden, it's just gotten too big and these people can't pay back their mortgages anymore. And so it's the it's the calculation that Quinto finds at the start of this movie. The algorithm gets it gets on the wrong side. It gets into the red where it was in the black. And once that happens, you can't go back anymore because it's going to create a cascading effect that topples the whole house of cards. And so like, what these guys do then is try – they see it coming because Quinto and um, Tutu do. And so they – on this last day of trading, they sell as much of those mortgages as they can at a considerable loss. But the loss that they will get by selling it before the, the economy actually collapses is so much less are- than the loss that would happen if they – hang on to it, and those assets completely lost Imagine their value. Imagine that... To use an analogy, they're holding on to... The longer they hold on to this, the more poisonous and acidic it gets. Yeah, it's fool's it's, gold. They need to sell it are, before it They vanishes. are holding gold. Yeah, it's going to burn yeah, they are through. Ho- they're basically holding scorpions, and they're trying to convince other investment bakers to take these scorpions off their hands as they're being stung with... The full knowledge that they are basically handing a pissed off scorpion to another person. And it's it's like it was unique in this instance to the mortgage thing. But a version of this always happens. Like I, I say a version. It's a, obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. But every recession, every financial collapse over the course of human history it's it's just one version of this. And Told even brings it up at the end. He recites all of the years of all of these things, even recites the ones that took him out personally as a younger man. Um, and he just says this this is a cycle. It just keeps happening. And it, it it's an astonishing thing to me because you look at the history of it, it really is. One of these things happens, and this is the most recent one we've seen, right? 2007, 2008. Uh happens just at the end of the Bush administration. Bush ends up having to bail out a lot of these banks because if they went down, it would like obliterate the world economy. And we wouldn't be talking mm. about the Great Recession. We'd be talking about the Great Depression Part 2. The collapse. Um, yes. Um, yeah. 
It's great depression. It's great depression part two. Electric Except Google, no one so. can pay yeah. for electricity. So um, Bush has to bail a lot of these guys out with socialism, <laughs> and because and uh, everyone's little... a socialist when the rubber hits the road, even the people yeah, who but... complain the most loudly about socialism. Yeah. So the Republicans will do a socialism the moment that they need to protect capitalism. Well, not How just the Republicans. That? Look at what happened in Australia during COVID. All of a sudden, the coalition's giving uh, people you know, thousands of dollars per fortnight in free money because they understood that because of circumstances, they had to, because otherwise the economy would completely collapse. And as it's itself. happening, the people who own Menulog, Uber Eats, DoorDash, all just sitting there like, yeah, yeah, this is good for us. But um, so Bush has to bail all of all of uh, these banks out. Obama comes in and basically has to deal with the fallout, rebuild the financial industry. And one of the things that he does, uh, while the Democrats have control of both houses in the America in America after his election, is put a bunch of restraints on banks, stuff regulations that prevent them from doing a lot of the things that. Uh, caused this in the first place. And what's one of the first things that Trump did once he got into office? Repeal a bunch of those pieces of legislation. I remember that there was a particularly big one at the beginning of 2018 that they pulled back um, mm. that was kind of like it was tailor-made in the aftermath of 2008 to uh, basically... Avoid exactly a, this. Avoid exactly this. And um, <laughs> it got pulled back. And if you if you look at the grand sweep of history, it's exactly what happens. It's uh, It happens... Governments respond, and then after a little while, they forget about it and they pull back on all of the regulations because it becomes politically expedient to do so. And then it all happens over again. I've compared it in the past to, um, you know, it's like if you have a really aggressive dog, right? And you and you take it for a walk in the park, and then it bites someone, and you say, "Bad dog, naughty dog, never do that again." And then you take it back to the park the next day, and it bites someone, and you say, "Bad dog, naughty dog, never do that again." And then you take it back to the park next day and it bites someone. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, mm. you just need to realize you need to stop taking the dog to the park because it bites people. Yeah. And that is one of the most interesting elements here in this movie is how dead serious everybody takes it when they see it. Yeah. Yeah. The moment they realize they're like, oh, no. And it's obscene, isn't it, really, when you think about it? I mean, I understand that, you know, we're just too big as a species. Eight billion people, the economy, like, it's it's too big a thing to uh, be dealt with in, like, this would this is just the reality of it. But the idea that a, that a, a mathematical, that a mass, a sum, a hypothetical mm. at this point is enough to, uh, you know, completely collapse the world economy like there is something arcane and unknowable about the market it's, isn't there something yeah. that seems that seems well, like it shouldn't be allowed to be that way but but i fully accept and understand that it kind of has to be just because of how big we've got we've, as a species we're not mm. a commune anymore we can't just trade you know the the fur that we've tanned or the the skin that we've the leather we've tanned for fresh meat it's we've too done big it to now. ourselves over the years and We've created this almost god of money that has to be prayed to, otherwise and, you know, the whole shebang crumbles. Like we, it's something it. that the Bettany character says in the in the mm. when he's in the car with Penn Badgley. He says that, um, and he's not wrong. That if all of these people want to live this life, right? 
all of these people, they want the house. They want the nice clothes. They want to be able to go out to dinner and the movies and things. It's in this current day and age, we can talk all about how it's gotten to that point. There's plenty of problems there. But it is true that we as people buy into that process and perpetuate it. Now, we do that because we have no other option. But um, like he's not wrong when he says that at the point that we're at, there's no they back. provide a service that you know mm. would things would get pretty ugly if they weren't there. Yeah, and then he says, if what we think is going to happen is going to happen, shit's fucked. Yeah, and I find it um, interesting. And Bettany does this scene like an absolute master of the craft. He's towing this line between feeling sympathy for normal, regular, everyday people and trying to convince himself not to by saying that he doesn't give a shit about normal people because they would call them cowards if they if things didn't pop off like that, but they would but they are and they ended up Consider being them reckless. Well they're going to demonize, demonize them exactly. for what they're doing. But if they've gotten it wrong and they're selling for no reason that they're gonna be laughed at and, essentially. Yeah. But at the end of the day he he knows that What's yeah, he can't turn his, yeah. He tries to convince himself to ignore the human collateral, but he just can't. Um, I there is I, that I, line I just from quickly, Jeremy Irons near the end. Quickly on the yeah. Betney character, like I don't want to leave him too quickly because I actually find him to be the most yeah. interesting character in the movie mm. because he is a guy who has sort of um, he's very cynical in the way that he sees the world, but he also has has an empathy and a sympathy. I don't really agree with you. He's a you. middle manager. Yeah, I don't really agree with you that he is trying to convince himself not to feel sympathy with people. I think he's sort of masking... It's how he's dealing with the crisis. He's is frustrated. He's, he's being very sarcastic. He's masking how he feels with this sort of cavalier attitude. But I think that, to this movie's credit, the vast majority of its characters are very morally conflicted mm. about what's happening and about mm. what the fallout of this is going to be. Um, the Betney character I feel the most interesting because I feel is the most interesting because he is sort of this creature of Wall Street, but he still has enough of a soul left outside of that building that it actually prov- like you can see a version where he's Simon Baker, yeah. right? Simon Baker mm. and Paul Betney to me are two sides of the same coin in this movie. Simon Baker's gone full Gordon Gecko, cutthroat, greed is good. I will mm. roll over anyone who stands in my way, but Betney hasn't. He's still got his principles. When Simon Baker comes up and says, hey, we might need you to throw Kevin Spacey under the bus if he doesn't do what we want him to do, he refuses. Yeah, he, he says no. He he's basically go- says yeah. no. He's got his loyalties. He's got his principles. And that's resulted in him reaching the glass ceiling of his business. He will never get hmm. any higher than he currently is because he's not willing to take that extra set step and cover himself in the blood of others to get to Simon Baker's job, to get to Jeremy Irons' job. And he, he likes his own boss too yeah. much to hmm. want his job. He's perfectly comfortable as a middleman. Yeah. Um, and that there's a sort of fatalistic attitude that he has. It, it's summed up in that scene on the roof, on the roof with yeah. uh, Zachary Quinto and Penn Badgley when he, he talks about you know, that um, that feeling when you look over the, the edge of a high space isn't the fear, fear the fall, of heights. You fear... it's, it's the feeling that you will jump. And yeah. I get that. Mm. Like, it actually makes sense to me. It's Cause... it's a psychological concept called the call of the void. Yeah. Um, it 
it's not that you want to jump. It's that you can't help but imagine what it'd be like to be falling. Funnily to enough. be that free. Funnily enough, Doctor Who did a version of that monologue um, about five <laughs> years before Margin Call did. <laughs> uh, just before David Tennant jumped into a bottomless pit to find out what was inside. Um, mm. Did he find out? Yes, it was the devil. Oh, sick! Um, oh, how so that? did it have a bottom, or was Satan falling down that hole as well? No, it had just a bottom, because out. really the devil just wanted to meet Doctor Who. So, fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, that's fair. I'd personally. like to meet Doctor Who. But then uh, that that is some of the stuff I think is is what makes this movie successful. It's the same thing mm. that makes, um, from what I can tell of it, not having seen it, Succession successful. Is that it's, it's the not, human element. It's exactly. It's about people, and it's about like all of the trappings of this. Um, you know the the numbers and the statistics and you know the finance stuff. It is it is an aesthetic for what the story is really about, which is about people in uh in this instance in margin call people in crisis and in fact the director said it's not about in the in the interview i saw on the on the disc he said it's not about um finance it's about a piece of information working its Mm. way up a chain of people and then how all of those people deal with this piece of information that will destroy them personally and the choice basically they find out there's a ticking bomb in the building yeah and they they have a choice: do they keep it in the building and destroy themselves, or do they chuck it next door and uh, come out as clean as possible? Well, it's not just that; it's they found out there's a ticking bomb in the basement of the building that's going to go off no matter what. But they can restrict the damage to their own building, but in the process, find out: hey, everywhere else is a ticking bomb as well. Mm. They just don't know about it. I talked about um. Paul Bettany, and I said that Simon Baker was sort of the mirror image. So I feel like Simon Baker is a good next stop. He's such a scumbag. Oh, yeah, he's a piece like, of shit. It's, <laughs> yeah, I love me he's some Simon Baker. He's not the biggest Baker. scumbag. It's a, it's a pity to me that Simon Baker just went home after The Mentalist finished, because I feel I like know, there's... he's so good. He's so good, and um, I feel like there's a real path for him in, you know, he could do, he would have been great on a show like yeah. Succession or something of oh, that, yeah. that ilk. Um, you know, I, I don't really see him in like a, a science fiction show or a superhero show or anything, no. but definitely in one of these like adult dramas, your, your Billions or Succession or, yeah. uh, or Breaking Bad or Mad Men or something. You know, something of that Something type, where people are talking would very be so seriously in. about very serious things. Mm. Um, Business! Nothing is more damning towards what we feel about him as a person than the scene in which he's shaving when Ben Pat Badgley Pen Badgley comes out mm. of the uh, the cubicle in the the men's room because he's been weeping in there. Yeah, and he's so obviously upset, and he's basically just like he's laying it all on the line. He's basically like, "This is all I ever wanted to do," and all Simon Baker says is, "Really." Like, completely disinterested. He's not even paying attention to the conversation. Whereas I'm sitting there thinking, like, wait, really? <laughs> like, you wanted to be an investment banker when you were seven? But a- apparently, in the original version of that scene, Simon Baker had, like, a parting um, comment. He apologized that this was happening to the Ben Badgley character. Mm. Whereas in the version and... we get, it's basically him going, fucking whoops. Well, he just doesn't say anything at all. He doesn't even acknowledge his existence. And Chandor changed it to that because mm. he thought that was so much mm. more effective and so much more what that character is. Is that 
he's gone now. He's not a worker anymore. He's going to lose his job. He is an insignificant piece of information. And so Simon he's Baker has moved on. Simon Baker essentially shrugs. He, he and really, extracted that piece what else? of information out of his brain because it it's not necessary anymore. And really, is there any greater an indicator of how big a psychopath that character is than the fact that he has filled a public bathroom sink with water and is putting that water near his mouth as he shaves? Mm. My God. Yeah, he's shaving <laughs> just, in a public restroom. Yeah, just, just, just keep the stubble, man. Like... <laughs> Look, after the day he's about to have, I don't think anyone would blame him for being a little bit shaggy looking. Yeah. Um, then... I think the biggest bastard is Thold. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I'm, 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 I, get, I get with you. He certainly, he does the most They treat damage. him like I'll the Grim Reaper mm. that he's been called, that he yeah. is this blackbird of death almost, sweeping into the building, calling the shots and... He, he even makes Zachary Quinto shit himself when he's saying, look, I need you to stand up, speak clearly, talk to me like I'm a five-year-old or a golden retriever. And the way, because... the dismissive way he says, oh, so you're, wait, is it him or is it Baker? Oh, back to Baker, the dismissive way he's like, oh, so you're a rocket scientist. Yeah. I don't know if it's dismissive. I think it's just very dry humor. That, like, he's a literal rocket scientist who is now yeah. a very low-level employee at this investment bank. Um, and it's because the money was better. Yeah, which, not for much to hear Chandor tell it, he knows a lot of people with those qualifications who went yeah. to the investment industry because the money was numbers. better. And isn't it's that a numbers. damning indictment of our society, that rocket scientists are paid less than investment bankers? Um, mm. But Thold... I agree with you, he does the most damage, but I don't find him the most despicable person. Like, he's been able to to explain away any moral compunction that he has, but he's actually very clear-eyed about the situation. He understands that this is a, yeah. a bad thing to do, but he doesn't feel bad about it. Whereas Baker's character is just seeing this as no. Put normal. it this way, like, everyone else is like, Think of it as a, like a trap in Saw, mm. right? Mm. There's a guy strapped to a table. Um, there's a, The key to your own handcuffs is in his stomach, and the Saw is right there. Everyone sitting around there is, like, talking about, oh, this is going to be so terrible, like, this guy doesn't deserve it, da-da-da. But John Thold's just like, I know exactly what I have to do. <laughs> he's picking up like, that Saw, and he's getting that key, and he doesn't feel bad about it because that's the situation. And Baker's already yeah, out of the room. He's the one who's put them in the fucking yeah. trap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. While everyone else is moralizing, he's, he's like, wrist Imagine the guy. Exactly. Sam Baker as the protagonist in a Saw film. Uh, um, Simon Ooh. Baker, yeah. Simon Baker, yeah. Um, but, He'd be uh, a good pick. But that's, yeah, mm -hmm. but that's the thing that I, like, Fold is... Even he is, I've, I've used the term before for Bettany, but Thold more than anything, he is a creature of Wall Street. He yeah. is the kind of person who's spotted what this industry is and figured out exactly how to work it to his own ends. And to do that, he's had to throw a lot of people under the bus, but he's done it within the defined parameters of the business that he works in, of the uh, area of commerce that he works in, because that's the thing. That's the most terrifying thing is that none of the things that any of these people do in this movie is illegal. It's immoral. Yeah. And they say, sure oh, the FBI immoral. will crawl up your ass and have a look around. The SEC, but yeah. 
They'll slow you down. But they can't they stop can't you stop from you. doing it. Yeah. Um, and when you put it at in those binary terms, at the end of the day, Fold is a businessman. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's a salesman. Su- he succeeded his whole career in putting these kinds of concerns into um into a binary. You know, and he he says it. I'm doing what I need to do so that we may survive. And for him, it's very much a law of the jungle. The weak gazelle dies, the lion gets to eat. Which is funny because and, um, he is Scar. Yeah. Well, well, it, well you get at the yeah, end of the thing. At the is, beginning of that scene, he says, when I, when I bring people into this business to work with me, I told them, do three things. Be there first, be smarter, or cheat. Now, we don't cheat, so you're going to be damn sure we're going to be there first. Yeah. I do like that scene where Spacey stands up to challenge him on the um on the yeah. sell off, mm. and because uh, Spacey's the one I want to move on to next, but um but the way that it's such an interesting office politics thing because there's this guy here who's just like even okay he's he's the ultimate boss right he is the head mm. of the company but he's also as a personality so ferocious and um. That's a, a magic trick of Jeremy Irons as well, that he's in a room with Paul Bettany and Kevin Spacey and Simon Baker and Demi Moore and all of these personalities that traditionally lead their own stories, right, that are the dynamic centre of their own scenes. And here he's got to walk in and dominate yeah. them, and he does. And he does, because he's Jeremy mm. fucking Irons. But the way that Spacey is challenging him but can't really say what he wants to say because mm. of the, the office politics of it all that's yeah. fascinating the fact that when they're behind closed doors together he feels no compunction whatsoever about tearing, turning around to jeremy irons and saying fuck you you're panicking yeah. and the because fact that irons takes that because if uh spacey's character says that he's panicking in that boardroom Everyone else will panic. That is a vote of no. Yeah. That's essentially him saying, "I've got no confidence in you," which which could inspire that in everyone else. They just need one person to say it. And I, it does have one of my favorite moments in the uh, in the whole story, which is when um, when told basically says, uh, "How would you do this if I made you do it?" <laughs> mm. um, but you know, we talked about told as sort of the ultimate capitalist that's what he is in that ending you know as the debris settles and the dust comes down and the whole economy starts to collapse he's up at the top floor of this skyscraper looking out over new york just consuming he's eating he's doing his crossword but he's no he that's not the important bit he's eating yeah, he's consuming everything and as he goes on to this you know basically manifesto this capitalist manifesto that he gives about um exactly how this works about how they're going to rise from the ashes and this is a cycle that's going to repeat itself over and over and over again um and sooner or later everyone will you know forget all about this and it doesn't matter that i threw them under the bus because there'll be money to be made and people want to make it mm. and he's eating the entire time he's just consuming it i and think told that's... told even brings up the kevin spacey's character they and he's like why are you moralizing now this is the same shit you've been doing for 40 years. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about Spacey, because I actually think in, in some ways his character is uh, kind of reflective of the collapse yeah. of the mm. banking Yeah, industry. I was thinking that because banking. his cat sort of – or it's his dog. Dog. 
his dog his symbolizes dog. the economy almost. Like the moment the dog dies is the moment the shit hits the fan. Yeah. He's even burying it in his yard. His ex's yard. Well, no, that's the important bit. His it, ex's the, yard. The house he doesn't own anymore. Yep. <laughs> like, that's some symbolism for you that the final s- shot of the movie is him just digging the hole deeper in the front yard that he doesn't own anymore. Um, that's a. Yeah. I think. Well, that, and it also. And there's that there's goes also that scene that I made Hardy actually mm. repeat because I thought that it was so fucking clever. It's when he's sort of lying back, listening to music, he's asleep, and he he is almost symbolic of the entire building of people, of the entire industry that he's in. He sort of shifts, he wakes up, and the music stops. Well, it kind of almost topples, doesn't it? And and the music stops, which is a line that had constantly been said by Iron's character of the music is going to stop. What matters is what we do after. And that the way that he's juxtaposed in that scene with Quinto. Yep. The Quinto's mm. on the ground, he's on the street, he's walking through people, and he's listening to his earpods, whereas Spacey's sitting up in his office in a skyscraper above the city, listening to a much more expensive-looking pair of over-ear headphones. Mm. Um, I'm not... Seems as good a place as any to transition to Zachary Quinto's character... Zachary Quinto was a producer on this movie. His production company is the one that made it. Um, I don't think he has a very interesting character to play. I think no, he's, he's very functional. functional. Yeah, He does it yeah. well, though. I mean, he works... He, he does it very well. He's very good. But he works in the way that his character bounces off of the older characters. The way mm. that he is a mirror of Spacey's character, definitely. But also, potentially, the Simon Baker character potentially John told like he is a reflection of all of these guys at the beginning of the career of their career and he is right at that first point where he gets to make a choice he gets to make a choice to commit to the um the career that he's in knowing how bad it can go and the damage that it can do or he can back off and he gets a choice that a lot of these other guys probably didn't get they probably didn't get that moment of clarity on the eve of the greatest financial collapse of people's lifetimes <laughs> where they actually got to see in black and white the damage that could happen. And, you know... Well, he's, they sure shit wouldn't get a promotion like he does. Yeah, but he he symbolizes that promise of the future generations. Yeah. Mm. Um, Demi Moore, I think, is very interesting because she's the only woman. And I think that that's something that... Um, would probably, I think. I think it's quite intentional the lack of representation here. Um, there are no people of color in the film except for Asif Manvi, who turns up um, to look over the USB stuff in the first he's meeting the lawyer. Bef- before Told arrives, um, and he's like roundly dismissed by Baker. Mm. He's ignored essentially, um, and the only other person who's not a white male is Demi Moore who is the person who goes under the bus at the end. Mm. I think that that's very intentional. Yeah. I don't think that that's an oversight on the part of the filmmakers that they have chosen a, a astonishingly um, astonishingly non-diverse cast. I actually think it's part of the point yeah. that these are the people who run this and business. And you, you do see people of colour in the background. You do see other women in the background. They're in the, te- they're in the, they're in the sales, sales team. team. They're the yeah. grunts. They're the... They're the 
ants that are going outside of the colony, grabbing food and bringing it back. But all yeah. of the people who are making the decisions are white, straight, and men. Well, we don't know the sexualities for most of them, yeah. but you can assume definitely. But also the fact that most of them are old, yeah. older, you know, yeah. um, most of them are middle-aged. Irons, who is cutting a very Rupert Murdoch-esque figure here, he's uh, running roughshod over the whole lot of them as an, uh, a, a senior citizen. And um, Simon Baker is seen as an anomaly, but he's still 45. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, he's spoken of as an anomaly in that regard, but he's still middle-aged. <laughs> but you get to the uh, the Demi Moore stuff, and she's the one that goes over the bu- uh, goes under the bus, even as we learn, she actually did raise Tucci's concerns. Yeah, um, both Spacey and Demi Moore were like, this could very well become a problem later down the line. Yeah, but like the fact that it's not Tucci mm. that's sacrificed, that it's not Spacey that's sacrificed, that it's not Simon Baker, who is the one that actually ignored all of the warnings, is that sacrificed, that it's the one woman in any type of leadership position that mm. is thrown under the bus as an excuse for the firm's incompetency yeah. is very telling. That's true. Um, um, that, I, I love this script here. Mm. It is so good. I especially like the pitch that um, Spacey's character is making to the salespeople. Uh, this is part of it. For those of you who've never been through this before, this is what the beginning of a fire sale looks like. I cannot begin to tell you how important the first hour and a half is going to be. I want you to hit every butt you could find. Dealers, brokers, clients, your mother if she's buying. <laughs> and no swaps. It's outgoing only today. Obviously, this is not going down the way that any of us would have hoped. But the ground is shifting below our feet. And apparently, there's no other way out. And everyone in that room, all of the sellers and the traders, they are getting... They understand. They're getting a huge bonus if they sell over 90% of what they've got on their table. And if, as a room, they all go over 90%, um, then they each get even more money. It ends up being something like $2.5 million yeah. or something around there. So they're... It shows how desperate the company is. Yeah, and how desperate they are. And, and not just them. It's perhaps most obvious with them because they're so low on the totem pole. But they're all desperate. Baker's desperate. Um, Spacey's desperate. Bettany's desperate because they... That's why they're making the decisions they are. <clears throat> Told's the only one that's making decisions out of a, a pure, you know, mathematical calculus. Everyone else is making a decisions because they, if they don't go along with what's happening, then it mm. will destroy them on a personal level. And I, I also love the scene where the fire, fire sale is happening. It's just shots of panning through the city with the voiceover and the calls start cordial. Mm. Like, even the other investment bank- banks are just going like, what are you doing <laughs> at the beginning? But by the end, they're like, fuck you, you're toxic, I am not touching any of the shit you've got. Mm. And it just happens that quick. It's why they have to do it in that sense. And the day. way that he's essentially burning partnerships with these people, burning relationships well, with these that- people at the same time, completely out of desperation. That's part of the um the spiel that Spacey's character gives. Uh, he says, um, 
I'm sure it hasn't taken you long to understand the implications of this sale. On your relationships with your counterparties, and as a result, on your careers. I have expressed this reality to the executive committee, and they understand. The way he says that entire... And as a result, you get the bonuses. He's looking hmm. at Simon Baker as he says it, and the, the look on his face is, yeah, I've expressed it to the head office, but they don't really care. They just they need you to do shit. what they need you to do. You're a cog in the wheel. And they say it during the movie that more sackings are coming after this because they kind of have to. Oh, yeah. In that economy? <laughs> in that economy. And that's what's so great about that final scene between um Thold and Spacey's character. Spacey's character's like, I'm, I'm going to stick it out for the next 24 months because I'm going to need the money. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also like... um. Bentney says it on the roof earlier, how he just burns through all of that money. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've heard it referred to as lifestyle creep, that uh, as you earn more money, you spend more money, and the fact that you spend more money every time your pay goes up, it happens so slowly that you don't realise just how more expensive your lifestyle has mm. gotten mm. to maintain. And and that is something that Thold says, Thold alludes to as well. He says, it doesn't even exist, money. It's just paper with pictures of faces on it. And, and that's matched with Tucci with the bridge. That he's yeah, like and, dreaming about this time he actually made something real, something that exists and has a tangible effect on people's mm. day-to-day lives. And even that that's even alluded to later in that final scene where Thold says, Or you could have been spending your your years digging ditches and Spacey responds with yeah, then at least I'd have a couple of holes to show for it. And yeah. like uh, describing, and, and but like, but what what I was getting at is that people in Thold's position, and even in Paul Bettany's position in this movie, that's so much money, so much money that they essentially don't consider the same way that a normal pe- normal person would consider so the money. It's interesting. There's a there's a different there's a different understanding of the value of say. $100 yeah. that a normal person has to what a millionaire has or a billionaire has. They don't think about money the same way. I think it's way. interesting the way you put it. Because mo- each dollar becomes less important the more you've got. I think it's interesting the way you talked about that final monologue that Tucci has because it's it exemplifies another one of the themes of the film, which is the creep. The fact that it is coming... It's coming, and you won't know until it's here. The way he describes how every time someone drives over that bridge, they are saving hours of their life, and it ends up going to over a thousand years accumulatively, cumulatively over all of the people who use the bridge. And that is a positive example of the death by a thousand cuts, which is happening to the economy in this movie and is happening to the firm and to the characters that they almost every decision that they make is them deciding to fuck over other people who are in exactly the same position as they are. And the only person who can sort of see past it with a sort of bird's eye view because he's not there anymore is the tooch. We gotta talk about yeah, the two. Stanley Tucci is so good. We haven't really emphasised just how good it's this cast is. It's fucking have we? stacked. Spacey, Barry McDonald shows up, but like less than a scene. scene. 
<laughs> and like you're just seeing this cavalcade of absolute craftspeople. It's like for first time writer director. It's incredible. How the hell did it's he manage this? It's absolutely incredible. It's absolutely stacked. Jeremy Irons, Kevin and Spacey. Kevin Spacey, who by this point is nominated for Oscars, you've got has, has won, won two. What you've has got won, yeah. again, Jeremy Irons, Penn Badgley coming off of Gilmore Girls. You've got fucking Zachary Quinto. You got Zachary you've Quinto. You've got Simon Baker. You've got Demi Moore. Is Ben Badgley in Gilmore Girls? I thought it was Gossip Girls. Oh, Gossip Girl. Girls. Sorry. I never Gossip watched Girl. it. All yeah. I know is that people were very confused when he played a serial killer in You. I know, I, I know him from you. That's the only thing I really know him from. Yeah. I I remarked, ah, a young Penn Badgley, which is basically when I'm referring to Penn Badgley in anything before you. Um, um, But it's a stacked cast, and they're all really good. Yeah, they are. They all get, like, moments, yeah. too. That's, yeah. Penn Badgley's is the crying That's in the That's what I love about yeah. movies like this, <laughs> and it's something that I think a movie like this has to do. It's the CV shot. That one moment where it allows the actor to just ply their talent and their craft and... It's the bit you put yeah, in your it's show, where you, show it's The scene where you earn your money. Quinto has a few... Spacey gets given a few of them. Irons gets his one where he's talking to all of the people, but Penn Badgley's one is him openly weeping in the bottom Irons is every yeah. scene. Irons <laughs> is every Irons scene is, that he's like, ever even been that in, scene, ever. Even that scene where he goes to tell Demi Moore that she's going to be left out in the cold. Mm. And the way that, like, she keeps pushing, I was assured that this wouldn't happen. And the way that, like, all of the warmth is out of Iron's eyes, but he just still has that smile on his face. He says, I would really appreciate it if you didn't fight me on this. <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> like, for, for my money, Irons is the role that you want if you're the oh, actor, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, um, I do I do have to point out that something that every level of executive responds to when they hear about is, we turned off T- Tucci's phone. <laughs> and they all have to respond to like, fuck's sake. Yeah. But they're all responsible for it. Like, come on, guys. Um, but I also want to talk... You- You've all, you specifically mentioned it, Jean, in your 30-second thoughts, the way that the film is shot mm. um, is very it's well empathetic. done. It's It's done... Yeah, yeah. And it definitely emphasises the environment a lot. Yeah, and it's not um, something I th- that I bring up a lot, and because not a lot of movies really do it, but I just... The way that the camera moves and frames people feels empathetic. It just has that feeling to it. It's not a cold no. movie. It's a very emotional yeah. one. But even the way that it uses lighting and framing, like the scene where they're driving, Bettany and um, Badgley are driving, and you get that close-up shot of Badgley looking out on the street, and there's all of this sort of like fading neon reflected back on his face. Mm. You know, it's the promise of this life that he was desperate to have yeah. that, you know, is now dying down and fading out. Mm. Um, because he... he- he can't help but have the feeling the whole time he's in the back of these boardrooms being not remembered. Part of him knows he's getting sacked. Yeah. Or the way because he's he, too close. Or the way that the it's always shot so that 
their height over the rest of the city is so yeah. emphasized that they are, you know, up in their ivory tower, deciding mm. over things that are going to affect the fates of all of those millions of people on the street yeah. below. Is there anything else that you two would like to talk about? Or um, No, not really. I think, no, we, got I think a, we covered most of it. We got a very good conversation out of that one, but we do have a section in the IMDb Parents okay, okay. Guide this week uh, in the Sex and Nudity section. Now, for the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie of the week. Uh, there's just one entry, as I said, in the Sex and Nudity section. A woman in a nighty walks out of her home at night to speak to a man. She is covered in a blanket, but her cleavage is briefly visible. The scene God is not Sorry, um... Yeah, gotta really look hurts, for that. honestly. <laughs> Guys, come on. I thought they were going to respond to a shirtless Simon Baker, but, you know. <laughs> um, so now why don't we move on to pick who we would recast in the Muppets Martin Call parody version of this film. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> um, uh, you keep the tooch. Mm, yeah. Mm. I feel like you keep Quinto and yeah. Badgley. Fair, fair. Who do you get as Tucci? Well, I feel like we like, through process of elimination, we we should start with the easier ones. I think Spacey is Kermit. Yep. yep. I think that Scooter is Betty. <laughs> yes, because like Scooter and Kermit, that's the kind of yeah relationship. Oh, Captain, my Captain thing. Um, Sam the Eagle as Irons. Yeah. Mm. Or do you get Statler and Waldorf, like, split the oh, yeah, part in yeah, two, yeah. like Marley yes. and Christmas Carol? Yeah, like Absolutely. The, Marley and Marley, like the that Dukes shit. from fucking yeah. trading places. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Baker role. Maybe Uncle Deadly? What is your obsession Uncle- into fitting Uncle Deadly into every single role? I like Uncle Deadly! I know that, but his is a very Vincent Price-esque... My, my yardstick here is if you can't imagine Vincent Price playing the character, then Uncle Deadly is <laughs> not the pick. That's what about Rolf? I just think he's distinct. Um, no, I think that's Rolf like is too warm. Pepe the Prawn, perhaps? Or, uh... Pepe's too pervy, I think. Hmm. You need someone who's just like a cut... No, Bunsen Honeydew. <laughs> Bunsen Honeydew. I, I said cutthroat and Bunsen yeah. Honeydew immediately <laughs> jumped in my head. The way that he just has no concern whatsoever for Beaker's yeah. safety and well-being. Like, that's a man mm. who is ready to throw them all under the oh, bus. Yeah. Like, He's yeah. just ready to do science. Yeah. Um, Demi so, Moore is Piggy. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's no other option. Um, that's all you've got. There's no other Muppet and there's no other female character, so it's a match made in heaven. Um, <laughs> Is that everyone? And I, I just everyone. love the idea that... Uh, oh, Tucci, Tucci, Tucci. I think Tucci's Tucci. Fozzie. Yeah. yeah. It's got kind of a softness to it. Uh, Fozzie or Rolf? Gonzo? Yeah, I could see Rolf. I could definitely see Rolf, because Fozzie is telling a lot of jokes... And that doesn't quite. Uh, I don't know. Fit for a lot of comedians yeah. have done serious I, roles before. I, okay, I'm changing my mind. I'm saying we have, we have, we keep Tucci around as the sole human, but it's um, Gonzo is Quinto and Rizzo is uh, yep. Badgley. Badgley, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, Tucci. if you think about it, like, Tucci would Rizzo love it. crying in the bathroom while Scooter shaves in the mirror outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just soullessly. Shirtless scooter right. for the ladies. No, no, it's 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 not scooter because scooter is. Uh, All right, yes. Who's well, Baker? who did we pick? Bunsen yeah. Honeydew. <laughs> That's even A better. Shirtless Bunsen Honeydew. 
And All you right. have, you obviously have um, Beaker there for illustrative purposes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Beaker's like the lawyer that gets completely ignored. <laughs> um. All right, so uh, why don't we move on now to say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and of course, who we would recast with this podcast, patron saint, character actor, John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie has got to be the writer and director, J.C. Chandor. Um, the fact that this was his first film as a writer and a director uh, and that he hits it out of the park in the way that he does, as I said, it might very well be my favourite movie of 2011. It's certainly in the top five. Um, I would have to really stop and consider a list there if I were to really come up with a definitive answer. But, you know, it's just so – it feels so authentic, but it's so detailed. The characters are so well drawn, but it also avoids being a polemic. Mm. You know, it avoids um, – you know, it, it depicts people who are making questionable moral decisions, but it doesn't do the eat the rich thing of just making them, you know – wholly despicable people that you can find no depth and dimension to. These are all very recognisable human beings who mm. um, are making decisions based on motives that you can understand. In every corporate structure, they're there. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I'm going to give it to him because I, I think it is great. And that the trick that he pulls in making this all digestible and accessible to a mainstream audience is something. I mean, I, I didn't get the chance to say it earlier, but it's kind of like... It reminded me of Shakespeare in the sense that you don't have to actually fully get what every single word said means. It's so complex and, you know... You might not understand the language, but you understand. But you understand the gist. You understand it on an emotional level. You get the gut Mm. punch of it. Um, And that's a difficult trick to pull, um, but very necessary when dealing with something as sort of completely alien to most people as the finance industry. Uh, so I'm going to give it to him. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it's got to be the big boardroom meeting after Jeremy Irons arrives. Uh, that has some of the best uh, writing in the thing. It has some of the best acting in the thing. Everyone gets their moment to uh, really be in on the ground floor um, in that scene and really contribute to what makes it great. But Irons just gets to hold court and... Uh, you know, he did those. He did all of his scenes in something like two days because this movie was shot in seventeen. Um, and uh, so all of that sort of tiredness and exasperatedness, and that's there's a realness to that that the actors are actually feeling, um, and it comes together so well to create a scene that is just you know. I, I forgot to mention, actually, like, I can't believe I forgot to mention this. I've seen this movie before. I saw it when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the Christmas break, and I can't even remember why, but, you know, we just needed – mum and I needed to kill time before doing something else, and she, she was like, let's just go to the movies. It's, it's summer. It's hot. What do you want to see? And I was like, I want to see Margin Call. <laughs> <laughs> the feel-good movie of the summer. I have and, to, I, and my, I say this every time we hear one of these stories about you. You're such a strange man. Like I know, I know. You would have been Weird. the weirdest kid. Yeah, but like... It's um, like, hey, do you want to go to this party? Like, do you want to socialise with other people? Nah, I want to go see Margin Call with my mum. Mum thought it was so, so boring. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I was like, yeah, this is the stuff. <laughs> to be fair, I can understand that impulse. <laughs> I simply don't share it. Um, but yeah, like, anyways, to get back to my point, like, that's the scene that I so remembered from mm. first seeing that movie, what, 11, 12 years ago at this point? Um, and uh, it's that boardroom scene. It's Irons really taking over. So I'm going to go with that. In terms of who I would recast th- with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow, it's got to be the role of Dole. Yeah. Um, I feel like the impulse is, and it was mine before I actually rewatched the movie, my impulse was, well, I think I'm going to be recasting Spacey because it seems to fit Lithgow from what I remember and it also gets Spacey out yeah. of there. But um, really, as I was watching, especially that boardroom scene, nothing seemed more suitable for John Lithgow's particular strengths as a thespian than told because that sort of run, that ability to run a room, that particular type of arsehole uh, that he's so good at playing, like it's all there and, and it allows him to basically just run rampant with great dialogue that lets him basically, you know, go up against all of these other excellent actors and come out on top. So I'm going to give him the role of Toll. Uh, so for me, I'm going to have to say my MVP is Shandor. Holy shit, man. You knock it out of the park with your first writing and directing gig, and you get a stacked cast, I would imagine, by the strength of the script alone. It also doesn't hurt that you shot the damn thing in 17 days, which is impressive in its own regard. Um... It's so well plotted. It's so well paced because you you don't get bored of any of it. It has this thrust. It has this driving action that's constantly moving and it doesn't have to be bang, bang tension to be thrilling. That's why I still consider it a thriller. It's just a financial thriller because there is a dragon already in the building and they can't do anything about it, then sell their poison stocks. Like, rats have been gnawing at the meat, and they just need to get rid of it. And this is not solely about the financial crisis. This is about crises in general, and how people in structures, in stratified structures, respond in times of crisis. And you could basically place that in any office around the country, with whatever their particular issue is, and the dynamics would still exist, because these dynamics exist. And it's a magic trick that Chandler has pulled in making this legible to the layman. I'm that layman, and I loved it. Um, My favorite scene or sequence, it's gotta be the two-hander at the end with um Thold, played by Jeremy Irons, and Spacey's character. Because Spacey throughout this whole thing has been going like, we shouldn't do it, it seems dodgy. And by the end, he's still part of the system, because he needs the money. He he will still do everything that he's asked, because he's representative of that industry. They will. He will still do what he's told, he will still keep the money rolling, he will still convince walking dead men to sell and destroy their careers for the profit of people whose jobs have been secure this entire time. And by the end of the movie, he just keeps digging that hole and digging that hole until it's deep enough that he can't step out of it. And trust me, when people find out what he's done, nobody's putting a ladder down for him. Um, It's a fantastic scene. Irons crushes it. The dialogue is brilliant. And it sort of wraps up 
the idea in a nutshell. These crises are repeatable. They happen all the goddamn time. And they're going to happen again, I guarantee it. The best we can do is mitigate. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to operate counter to Lawson here with my pick for Lithgow. I understand why you pick Thor. There's a lot of really, like, savage shit you get him to do, but I think the vulnerability of of Spacey's character... Uh, just hold on a second. Let me just track down the character's name. Um, Sam Rogers. Sam Rogers. You get him as the Sam Rogers character because he can do that. He can show the sort of... He has to be cutthroat when he has to be, but the biggest thing about his character is the complicity, is his choice to be complicit in all of these actions, despite his moral objections. And that gives Lithgow a lot to work with. I've cast him as a lot of out-and-out villains recently, and this gives him a real opportunity to sort of play the sympathetic character for once. And while he plays an amazing villain, the vulnerability that Lithgow can perform is something that I think that would be key to any version of the movie with him involved survival um and i don't know there's something about spacey's past roles not to mention his personal legal trouble there's something about spacey as an actor i don't trust like i don't i don't fully buy his moral objection with lithgow i can buy the moral objection and then going by the firm's plan anyway because it saves his skin in the end and that would just be more compelling with an actor like Lithgow, I think. Someone someone you could trust, you know? John, what about you? Yeah, so I give my MVP to Chandor because... Chandor? Chandor. Chandor. Because he did such a good job. He's been gifted with an absolutely stellar cast, but the bones are there already. He's a very talented director. He's a very talented screenwriter. This won't be the last time he focuses on a group of people who betray their morals for money, because he would later go on to direct and write Triple Frontier, which I quite enjoyed. I know that other people didn't. But he does have such a good focus on people and what people will do to get ahead, even in the face of the absolute beast crawling towards Bethlehem that was the recession. And it's so well-written, it's so well-directed. You never stop feeling empathy for certain characters and you never stop despising others but all of them are so well performed and all of them are so well written that they continue being human the entire time for my favorite scene or sequence i have to agree with lawson it's when irons comes in and just is jeremy irons he just absolutely steals the show out from under people and you get him being and i couldn't get this thought out of my head watching that scene, how lucky is Zachary Quinto? How lucky was he to have this tete-a-tete with Jeremy Irons? That would have been absolutely incredible. It's an actor's dream. And watching him fulfill that dream on screen is just brilliant. It's a fantastically written scene, and it just lets the actors play, and I enjoy that kind of thing a lot. For who I would get Lithgow as, I agree with Lawson. I see where Harley's coming from about the gentleness and the softness of the character, but I think him as told can be this really vicious, but also cold and collected person. This almost bloodthirsty 
desire for wealth to the point where it's not a it's not a warm passion it's a cold calculation of figuring out how much he needs to take from people before they're irrelevant and that is such a fascinating character for john lithgow and again it gives him the best character in the entire movie i can't not want that all right so now we're going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro margin call podcast or not lawson why don't you cast your vote first well, obviously, I'm saying yes. I've said multiple times that it's one of my favourite movies of 2011, if not my favourite. It'd be a very unusual plot twist if at the end here I said no. Um, I think it's brilliant. Maybe, maybe you just despise 2011 in film. Uh, I think it's brilliantly written. I think it's brilliantly acted. I think it performs a, a fairly remarkable feat in making its subject matter digestible, exciting. Um, you know, those these there are scenes here that are more thrilling to me than any action scene. You know, they they just have just as great an effect on me, um, and that's a hard thing to pull off, and they've done it. So uh, I'm absolutely saying yes. Uh, so for me, I second everything Lawson said there. I think it's incredibly well structured. It is brilliantly acted. The script is smart as a whip, and every performance is golden. I I don't know how I couldn't be a pro vote on this one. It's it's sort of tailor made for us, you, you know what I mean. We all like the boardroom talky stuff, and this is a excellent excellent example of that. Um, because it never forgets to be what it is, which is a human story about human beings going through the opening stages of a crisis and how people respond to that. It's basically a disaster movie, uh, condensed to one office worth of people. Um. It's it's brilliant. I loved it. It's a pro vote for me. I will say a pro for this as well. And it's because of the high quality of the cast, because of the high quality of the script, the emotional filmmaking, the emotional cinematography, how empathetic it is towards the characters up to the point where they reveal themselves that you really shouldn't empathize with a psychopath. And it goes a long way to humanize a group of people who were rightfully demonized after the recession hit because they fucked it they screwed the pooch and a lot of them cannot be forgiven for it but in that we need to realize that they were fallible human beings making terrible mistakes so it's a pro from me it's got everything that we want from one of these movies so there you have it we are pro margin call So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counterfeit. You can try You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counterfeit if I join myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Margin Cole? What is your favorite finance thriller? Uh it is a very narrow, narrow group, it's but actually not as just, narrow as you'd think. Just let us know, what do you think about this specific type of movie? Because there are a few of them that will be coming up uh, over the next couple of years on the podcast. The financial thriller has its own Wikipedia page, I'm just saying. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, what's your favorite, fina- favorite financial thriller? Uh, 
You can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on the podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, it's for uh, the show on the whole, and for others, you comment on specific episodes. I know on Apple Podcasts, it is for the show on the whole, and on like Podbean and smaller stuff like that, it is for specific episodes. Uh, if you are commenting on the whole, uh, just cite which episode you're referring to. It just lets us know what you're talking about a little bit better. Um, and so, yeah, it just helps with communication when people are specific. Um, you can like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Naturally, I like to say that I, I like to make these future spiel things about things that are relevant to the movies. <coughs> there is no human financial sector anymore. It is machine run almost completely. Uh, people don't really use money in the same way as we used to. They're more tokens that can be redeemed for, say, more food than we would normally so get. So money. The structures are different. <laughs> what, what you're just the structures tokens are different. Tokens we it's... can exchange for goods and services, <laughs> aka money. You've you've created yes, money. Yes, the structures well are different though. You'll be glad to know that there are no investment bank bankers anymore. Uh, well, if you're listening to this episode on the day that it came out, then today is December the 21st. So Merry Christmas, happy Merry happy Christmas. seasons greetings, uh, Martin. Call what a what a better opportunity uh, to talk. It's about all about Martin a Call bunch of people who are season. definitely getting coal in their stockings. Um, but uh, obviously, for our podcast, the the Christmas time means that we will be doing our bonus episode, which is uh, a quickie. One that's not on the uh, the formal list of movies that we talk about, but um, you know, it just gives us something fun and interesting to have a look at uh, as to fill time, so we don't have to do a full episode over the holidays. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this one. It's a it's a weird one. It's been recently remastered for Blu-ray this year, hence us talking about it. Uh, it is Robot Monster, the infamously bad. Um, science fiction B-movie from the 50s. If you would like to watch along at home and you are in Australia, then you can find it available for streaming on Tubi and something called Cult Picks. And I'm sure you could just find it on YouTube. Yes. This is one of those movies that is simply old enough. I'm actually not sure if it's in public domain or if it is um, just pirated and no one's bothered to take it down. <laughs> um I don't but know at which, any rate, it's one of those would movies that which would be sadder, but definitely um, make sure that it's legal to watch yeah. on YouTube before you do it. So, uh, yeah. Yep. So join us next week for our bonus episode where we discuss Robot Monster. Till then, I've been Ollie Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney, and I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis. Ho ho ho! Merry reception.